going to discuss purgatory today. Purgatory is, of course, you know, one of those subjects that, you know, you kind of, if you don't know about it, you think it's something that it's not. And if you do know a little bit about it, it's easy to say, well, I do know something about it, but I couldn't tell you what it is. And uh, how many people have gone to Catholic schools <laughs> can give that, uh, that information, unfortunately? Um, let's just go from the basics, okay? Let's look at the definition of what the word purgatory means. It comes from the Latin purgare, purgare, which means to clean or to purify. We have um, words in the English language that reflect that, to purge. What does to purge mean? It means to clean, right, completely. And in accordance with the church's teaching, it is a condition of temporal punishment for those who departing this life in God's grace are not entirely free from venial faults. Now there's a lot of Catholic speak in there, isn't there? Here's the deal. Unless we die in a state of perfection, and it could happen, for example, we're called to give an account of our faith with our lives. We're called, and that is becoming more and more prevalent Unfortunately, not just, you know, 2,000 years ago, we're seeing, a, you know, the, the 20th century had mo the most amount of martyrdoms than any of the prior centuries combined, Christian martyrs, okay? So don't be thinking that that might not be a possibility. I mean, for us, you know, fat and sassy here in middle America, you know, who's going to pick on us? Although they're picking on us in different ways. But, you know, that, that whole ultimate tribute thing hopefully will not be called, you know, it might be the easiest way to heaven, but be kind of painful. I don't know, you know. Um, so unless you die in a perfect state of holiness, which means that all your attachments to sin have been burnt away, they've been, they've been rubbed away, you know, that you have really not only decided to please the Lord in every way, of course, by abstaining from mortal sin. Well, that's the basic. St. Teresa of Avila said that's the, big, that's the stepping stone. But then also from attachment to venial sins, you know. You, don't, you, don't, you no longer say things like, well, you know, I used to do this and it was a lot of fun. But now I'm not doing it anymore. Why? Because I don't know, but I'm not doing it, you know. It, those, even all those like secret attachments that you have to sin, venial sin. So, you know, you do, you do understand the difference between venial sin and mortal sin. Mortal sin requires us to have a, an, an awareness of what we're doing and an intent to do what, it has, what, what we're doing. And it has to be grave matter, you know, killing somebody, something like that, okay? Venial sin is everything else. And I would dare say that... Um, most of us in this room may have had a passing acquaintance with venial sin. <laughs> I know I do. So the purpose of purgatory is for people who fall asleep in friendship with the Lord. So they love the Lord. They, their whole, they, they've been tending towards God. Remember I said, if we are like a field of flowers and the sun is going over, like um, the, um, what are the sunflowers, that they start in the morning and they're, they're facing the sun and then as the sun goes up, they're facing the sun. As the sun goes down, they're facing the sun. That is the way we should be, facing the Lord, always towards him. If we spend our whole life facing the other way and deriving all our directions from ourselves or from something else that's not God, well then, 
then we have a difference in direction, don't we? Which is not to say that God's mercy can't strike us there at, at the end and, and, and reveal everything to us and give us an opportunity to repent. Because you know, God is mercy. God says he is merciful. His, one of his names is mercy. His loving kindness is said mercy in the Hebrew. But all, when all is said and done, we have this wonderful last chance to become purified so that we may enter heaven. The Catholic doctrine of purgatory supposes the fact that some die with smaller faults for which there was no true repentance and also the fact that temporal penalty due to sin is at times not wholly paid in this life. So we have this scenario where we're attached to sin, smaller sin, but we also have a scenario where we may have done some serious transgressions and we've been forgiven for the transgression, but we have not done a temporal um, a temporal giving back, let's say, a restitution. For example, under the law, um, I hit my golf ball and it goes through somebody's window and they get me, they nail me, because usually you can never get somebody who, you know, it's happened to me. <laughs> you know, they're long gone, right? Let's say they own up to it. Well, I forgive you for breaking my window, but you still need to fix my window. You know what I'm saying? So that the guilt is forgiven by Jesus on the cross for all of our sins. The fundamental transgression. But there's always some form of temporal restitution or some fallout that needs to be addressed. Another example that's given is a nail. I, if I'm building a fence and I, and I nail a big old six inch nail through a board and then I decide that it shouldn't go there, I really should, meant to put that nail somewhere else, well then I need to pry that nail out and put it somewhere else. But what remains in the board? A hole. So that, that whole idea of restitution is filling in that hole. So and if you, don't, if you don't do it in your life, you have a chance after you pass on from this plane to spend some time in the waiting room. You understand what I'm saying? Obviously this is, you know, this is boiling it down to some pretty basic stuff. Now, let me just tell you this. You may have read books or seen articles about people who say, well, you know, the whole tradition of purgatory is just some sort of medieval accretion. It's, uh, it's some sort of invention of later days. But actually, no, it's not. Some of the earliest graffiti in the catacombs in the first three centuries in the life of the church are people asking for prayers for somebody who is deceased, somebody who has gone before. So that the prayer for the dead has been obviously always inextricably bound up with the practice of, of the idea that our prayers are going to make a difference for this person after death. And where do we get that idea? If you have any Jewish friends and you, they pray their mourners Kaddish, the mourners Kaddish right now, you know, unfortunately for many Jews has become sort of a cultural thing. But at the root of the mourners Kaddish, of sitting Kaddish, sitting Shiva, is that your prayers, your actions on this side are going to help the person on the other side. You see what I'm saying? So there's, there's that idea that the living can help those who have gone beyond. Now, one of the, let me just show out, <clears throat> throw out some ideas. The state of purification that we would enter upon death 
is not a prolongation of the earthly condition, meaning we only have one shot of, at holiness. From our birth to our death, that is our window. We don't get a second chance, you know, to do something different, to change once we're dead. We only, once we're dead, we have to be there in that state of purification for however long it takes, unless we have people on this side of the veil and on the other side in heaven, in glory, interceding on our behalf. And then those prayers make a difference. They can move us up, let's say if we were to talk about a heavenly waiting line, which of course we're not, because it's not a place, it's a state of being that we're talking about, right? I mean, we use, we use human fallible words to, de to determine conditions that we, we know nothing about. I mean, we know through faith and through the scriptures, but that's about it, okay? So, every trace of attachment to evil must be eliminated and every imperfection of the soul corrected. So it's a condition of existence and not a place. Now, guilt can be forgiven, as I was saying, but temporal responsibility for sin remains and must be fulfilled. Now, if we want to get into the scriptures, Isaiah 118 says God will remove guilt. And not just Isaiah, look at the balance of the gospels and the Pauline letters. Romans 5.9 says God will remove any eternal punishment. So we're, like, I'm just trying, I'm going back and kind of unpacking something I said before. The guilt is taken away when we give ourselves to the Lord and we receive the sacraments and we allow the Lord to wash us with his blood. But the temporal consequences and the temporal penalties remain. So although Jesus paid the price for our sins before God, he did not relieve our obligation to repair what we have done. So as I said, I gave you the example of the golf ball. I can give you an example of somebody stealing my car and going for a joyride and trashing the car. Well, I may forgive the whippersnapper when they finally catch him, but that doesn't mean that somebody's going to make, you know, fix my car, right? All right. Now, another concept, death entered the world through original sin. That's another piece of the puzzle. That's Genesis 3.22, right? And also Romans 5.12. I'm trying to kind of skip ahead a little bit so you all can see where many of these concepts are anchored. Well, physical death, according to the story in the Garden of Eden, is a direct consequence of original sin. Meaning what? Physical death was not plan A. Physical death and suffering were not plan A. God did not create us to suffer. God created us for what? To love him. To be his companions. To walk with him in the cool of the night in the garden. If you remember the language from Genesis, right? What happened? What did Adam and Eve do? What did our first parents do? They messed up, didn't they? They, they, they basically committed that first grievous sin, which is they substituted their judgment for God's. They said, God, it's a good idea, but I think we're just going to go with what we think is best. Anybody recognize that? <laughs> Isn't that in a way, when we say that pride is one of the roots of evil, well, that's pride. Because we assume that we know better than the almighty, everlasting, loving, merciful God who created us for himself. You understand the, the, the incredible 
incredibly large amount of arrogance that that would entail, the hubris, that's a Greek word for prideful arrogance. That's the human condition, that's, that's original sin. That, yeah, I have all this evidence in front of me that you're an awesome creator God, but I'm just gonna go for it myself. You know, that is in a way the essence of original sin. So, and I say that because I'm trying to personalize original sin for you all, because a lot of us say, oh, come on, those guys did that a gazillion years ago, and why should I, or why should this precious baby, you hear that a lot, right? Oh, this innocent little soul, really, what did they ever do? Well, nothing yet. <laughs> they will. <laughs> Just give them a chance, right? But they, in their spiritual gene pool, have this tendency that we all do, this C.S. Lewis says we're bent. We're not straight, we're bent. And we're bent towards, we want to do ourselves, our deal, our agenda, our plan, our judgments, okay? Am I making sense? Do you all recognize? Is it, can anybody tell me that they don't know what I'm talking about? I'm just trying to put it in as common words as possible, the fact that yes, we are all wounded by original sin, and yes, we all inherited it through the fact that we are all human beings. And yes, we all have this tendency to want to substitute our judgment for God's judgment. And yes, it's something that we, we're fighting every day of our life. But that basic stain is removed through the treasury of graces that God has entrusted in the church through the sacrament of baptism. You see how all that works? The church has been given the power to bind and loose. You remember that passage? Whoever sins you bind will be bound. Whoever sins you loose will be loosened. That's a very important power that's given to the church, to the body of Christ. So that in, from her treasury of graces that Jesus gives her, she, through baptism, we are made clean of that original stain, right? But then wouldn't it be nice, you know, like Charlemagne, to be able to know, hey, I'm about to die, I, think I better get baptized, that way I go straight up to heaven because I haven't had a chance to sin yet. Well, most of us baptized at birth, we've got plenty of chances, don't we? <laughs> right? So that's where the, the sacraments come in, that's where confession comes in, that's where the Eucharist comes in, and so on and so forth because the Lord, in his mercy, acknowledges the fact that we are fallible human beings and he loves us anyway. He, even though we were steeped in sin, he sent his only begotten son. He gave up his only begotten son for us. Even when we were still in sin and we never could have appreciated what he had done, he had to send people afterwards to explain what had happened. Not even the apostles really understood or the disciples understood the magnitude of the sacrifice of the Lord, right? We know that, how? We know that from reading Acts, we know that from reading the ends of the Gospels, right? Those guys kinda didn't know what was going on. And what happened to open their minds? Who came and illumined them? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, the biggest thing I can do for you is to send the Holy Spirit, and he does, and that's what we receive in baptism, and that is what is confirmed in confirmation, and that is also, if we know to ask for it, is what we continue to ask for every day of our lives. Come Holy Spirit, open this deal up to me. I don't get it, I don't understand it. Show me your ways, Lord, that I may walk in them. All right? So that's, that's the human condition.